1: Di Morrissey is the out and out queen of Australian popular fiction, with 3.5 million books sold, and her latest, her 28th novel, Before the Storm, debuting at number one. She's published one of those page turners every October for 28 of the last 29 years. But she's so much more than Australia's top novelist. She's a dedicated local newspaper editor and a committed environmentalist who in 2019 was awarded Australia's top honour, a member of the Order of Australia, for her services to literature, conservation, and the environment. Hi there. I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and in today's episode, Di talks about getting the last laugh on the critics who once described her books as hairspray on a page, and why she's made it her life's work to write books with an enduring sense of Australian location and identity. But before we get to Di, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website The www.thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Di's books and website, as well as how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, leave us a comment or a suggestion. We love to hear from our listeners. But now, here's Di. Hello there, Di, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Jenny. It's fun to do this and catch up. It's wonderful. Look, you are out and out the queen of Aussie fiction. You're is as Australia's favourite storyteller and the proof is in the pudding. Your, your latest book, Before the Storm, I believe it pretty well debuted at number one in the seller list, didn't it? Australian fiction, yes, yes, yes it's. Yeah. Fair. I don't think I'm. St- I'm still up there in the top five
2: or something. But there's so many wonderful books coming out this year, and all in October. So you know, we all have to take our turn. I think COVID has been extraordinary for encouraging people to you know to read books again. It's wonderful.
1: Oh, that's good news. Look, before the storm is your twenty eighth novel in twenty nine years. A remarkable record in itself, and you've clocked up something like 3.5 million book sales in the time that you've been writing. In Australia, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you sell anywhere else, actually?
2: Oh, very big in Germany. The Germans just love Australia. Um, They didn't want to buy The Last Paradise because it was partly set in Bali. You know, they want the great Australian landscape. And I must say, so often when I go out to places like Broome or the Kimberley or the middle of a desert, you know, there'll be some strapping blonde-headed bloke with a knapsack and boots striding into the out of the desert, out of nowhere, and he's always German. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, with the record of, you've got, the, this fantastic number of sales, and every October you're producing a page turner. When you started out, what were your expectations as a writer? What did you... Have in mind as as a goal. Get published. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, I mean, we all write, but getting a book published. But that's what I wanted to do. That was my childhood ambition from age seven was, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I was very fortunate in that I met a very elderly Dorothea McKellar. And uh, she lived down in the pit water in the bush where I was living as a seven-year-old. And she invited me in for a tea and a biscuit and I'd never seen, we were quite poor, and I'd never seen so many books because I adored books. And I said, well, I had to make up stories in my own head because I only got a book at Christmas and birthday. And she very seriously said, well, my dear, you put your stories down in a book one day for other people to enjoy. And I went, oh, what a good idea, okay. but I discovered you don't leave school and become a
1: novelist. (laughs) (laughs) You just didn't do quite in that order in those days, did you?
2: No, but what I did do, was, you know, I was struggling and I was modelling and I was doing a bit of acting and, like, floundering because my mother couldn't afford to send me to university. Uh, And my very wise uncle, who was an ABC foreign correspondent, said the best thing you can do is go and work on a newspaper or magazine. He took me into ACP and I got a job as a copy girl and then a cadet on the Woman's Weekly. The best thing I
1: could have done. That's fantastic. And that does introduce the theme of Before the Storm because there's a very strong theme about the importance of local media. And that is a very personal cause for you. You are currently running a monthly independent newspaper in your own community called the Manning Community News. And it's all funded virtually out of Love and your bank account. Yes, and a few
2: brave advertisers. Well, for one thing, the
1: demise of
2: local media is shocking when News Limited sold all of their, you know, regional newspapers that had been and then Fairfax was taken over by ACM, Australian Community Media or something. Um, And they've just kind of swallowed everything up by big corporates who are no longer, they're only interested really in advertising Mm -hmm. and selling newspapers. And so they're like zombie papers. The same stuff is in all of them all over the country. Local news is what communities and even suburban communities a need that you want to know what's going on in your backyard, what your council's doing, and what's happened to my brakes and rubbish and bloody roads, you know? yeah And that applies even more so in isolated regional communities. So the local newspaper is really important and and also a lot of aging population. They don't want to go online and read a newspaper. They want to walk up the street and have a cup of tea, see their mates, and pick up the paper and sit down and read it. Yeah. So that's why the I'm online, but the majority, I mean, of newspapers and they circulate way out of our area. But I have I have general news and international news and stuff I find interesting, which apparently other people do. Plus, you know, holding the
1: local council to account. Yes. Now, we've got a lot of listeners who aren't in Australia. They're in either um, Europe or the US. So for them, can you tell them a little bit about Manning? What sort of a community is it? And the key issues, are they also things that would be affecting your own readers? Is it a way in, in one way of keeping in touch with the people who are going to be reading your book?
2: Uh, yes, uh, the the books are basically all set in Australia, and they've got Australian themes. Sometimes I go to countries, and I go, and I do literally go there and and live and research that I have links with Australia, be it you know the the UK or Burma or you know Hawaii has a lot a, a lot of links and places you know but there's a lot of Europeans like the you know Germans who absolutely love Australia and people have now from overseas before you know the current situation of COVID would read my book and the same in Australia and they think broom sounds amazing I must go there so you know it's and for people a lot of readers who can't travel they have armchair traveling and they feel they go to the place because in doing the research I go and I spend a month in Broome or in Mandalay or wherever to kind of soak up the atmosphere and being a journalist, do all the research and get the, get the background right. But essentially the issues really what concern every, all of us in many ways, but the environment is, is a massive um, issue for me and like up here, we're losing, you know, we had these terrible bushfires. We've lost, you know, millions of, of wildlife, particularly koalas. I have koalas in my garden and, you know, the corridors, of, you know, we're fighting developers and greed and we're, you know, if anything we've learned from COVID, it's how important nature is and family and, taking time to smell the roses and grow veggies and stuff like that. And I kind of wonder, hopefully, that, uh, you know, we won't go back to the way it was and that we have to protect nature and stop these awful housing developments that are like a cancer over what where I live is a very old dairy country of rolling, you know, green plains and beautiful rivers and beautiful old mountains that was the cedar industry.
1: Yes, and it, bringing it back to Before the Storm, your character, the key character, heroine Ellie, she quits her job in the big city and she goes back to a small town and she's her grandfather's running the local independent newspaper and it rolls into a story about a big money family who's trying to trip people into having this development without declaring what's really going on, as well as corrupt local body politicians. It's very much the kind of thing you're talking about, that um, if they can't do it by overt means, they try it by covert means.
2: Yes, well, I'm beginning to think, well, I, I you know, suspect, Eileen, that the countries and the politicians are all being run by developers. There are money rules and it's wrong and particularly when it's not what the community wants. And, you know, the acknowledgement of, of climate change is, is a bit thin on the ground. So, but people know, farmers know, we all know, and we all worry about our kids and grandchildren and what they're going to inherit. So in a fictional uh, way I try to introduce issues within a, a normal family or you know, quirky people or whatever but it raises things without preaching so that that the message gets across and I think that's what people, people resonate with. yeah I mean they' they they're, they're books that are still you know have adventure and I'm not a romance writer. I mean I write about relationships and my readers don't care about sex, whether they're 20 or 95 and I have a lot of men and women reading that read my books. So I get to more that more to the heart and the head and people always want to, A, go to the place, they want to do the same things, and they get riled up about things. And that's, I mean, that's the journalist in me, but it's also, if you can do it in a way that's entertaining, it's far more effective.
1: Yes, yes. Look, the forward for the book makes it clear where you stand. It's quite touching. You, I mean, the you, you know, a little community newspaper in Manning, you might not think that it had that kind of grand level significance, but you devote the book to... Those who lost their lives seeking to tell the truth and shine light in dark corners. And we know from the international news that there are journalists still losing their lives. What do you see in our world that most concerns you in relation to media? Oh,
2: climate change, I would think. It has to be the way we, we grow and sell our food, mine land, where our priorities are, and you know the, the corporate greed who fund politicians who then have to go along with ridiculous, you know, gas and coal when so many European countries, you know, jumping ahead and embracing renewables. And, you know, we we need to change every, everybody's thinking. And of course, I grew up in in a family of journalists, you know Philip Knightley, who who wrote The Last Casualty, was a wonderful journalist. He lived in London, of course, for so many years. But you know he uh, you know he said truth is the last casualty, and that that unfortunately still applies.
1: Mm. Mm. Look, your books are the sort that originally might have had trouble being taken seriously. Very recently, there was a Weekend Australian magazine story. And for those who aren't aware of it, The Australian is a major national newspaper in in Australia. Even if it is a Murdoch paper. (laughs) (laughs) and the journey, flagship <laughs> flagship Murdoch flagship, flagship there was this kind of sort of sneaky little thing that was said in that article that, uh, that caught my eye they they called your books mass market catnip and I thought oh my gosh what a way to describe your books they said if exotic. I'm not sure what that
2: means I mean catnip either turns cats on and I don't have any sex in my book because readers don't particularly want it. Or it puts them to sleep, which is the absolute opposite. People sit up all night reading my books. I don't quite know where the catnip came from. But in the beginning, that was a very big issue. I had the two things going against me. I was blonde and I'd worked in television. I was a breakfast television host. So it's like I have wanted to write books since I'm seven. I've now had a big career as a journalist, a big career as a diplomat's wife living all over the world. I've raised a family. I'm in breakfast television. I got that job because I thought you start at 2am and you're on air from 7 to 9 and then you go home. But of course, I was there all day and had to go and like see movies and interview people at 11 o'clock at night. After eight years, I just went, you know what? I'm going to be forty in a couple of years. this is ridiculous. so what happened to the dream of the seven year old so I just I just quit so then of course, in the press it's like oh well, she's too old for television now, so she's the poor girl's going to try and write a novel so you know that was that's and that. At that point, Australia was, and to a certain extent still is, quite literary uh, snobs. And so serious writers from Patrick West you know, on were not taken um, very seriously. And my friend Bryce Courtney was, we were the Mr and Mrs Popular Fiction, as Bryce used to call us, and we were never invited to the literary festivals to, to speak. I mean, we did sell... <laughs> 10 times, I suppose, what a literary, or more, what a literary writer might, might sell. So then there was another reason to be viewed with some, you know, suspicion and envy, I suppose. But it can't be any good if it sells a lot of books. So, I mean, that was very... Kind of outrageous. And there's a wonderful agent here called Selwa Anthony, still going on. And Selwa had some wonderful clients. She looked after Colleen McCullough, for example. And she started a campaign with my first book of trying to bring down the barriers from popular fiction. And, you know, the first one I went to was so uncomfortable I was so I mean people were frankly you know downright rude so anyway I ignored that and said well I'm never doing one again but after a number of years I think I was earning my stripes and I did get to go to the Adelaide very impressive popular wonderful literary festival in Adelaide and I'm standing on the the stage next to Margaret Atwood and Isabella Allende and I thought (laughs) Take that, folks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I that have was, arrived.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. Look, your friend Thomas Keneally, the Booker Prize winner, says of you yes. that you know you only live once and so you're packing two lives into it. Do you think that's fair comment? And have you always lived life at full tilt? Um.
2: Well, I don't think so. I mean, I just take every day as it comes. But, I mean, I grew up very poor. My father and baby brother drowned uh, in a tragic accident when I was nine, nearly ten. We had no money. And then my mother, who never worked, I mean, she had driven a truck in the war or something, but she was a great example. So she got a job in this new burgeoning television industry, very male, very chauvinistic, and worked her way up to become our first woman television director. So I assumed that women could do anything. It wasn't always easy, but, I mean, you had to have a go. So, you know, I became, was working as a, as a, as a journalist and, and then I married an American diplomat and so we were posted all over the world. So, you know, I had to I had that life and then I had came back and had the breakfast television life and then the novelist life and then I've now grown grandmother and i've got this life so and i'm now running a newspaper so i'm publishing an editor of a newspaper and i mean you know we i don't then it's free because that's how it reaches lots of people and it goes all the way up the coast of new south wales from port macquarie down to so 10,000 copies that's a lot every month and it's and i'm having i'm making serious inroads with being an investigative reporter and um, holding a few people to account, so yes, so I'm doing that, and, and plus I'm trying to do some get my books on television, and you know we're we're moving in that direction. So yes, I don't know what I'll do
1: next. <laughs> <laughs> that raises a couple of things. You do like to travel around the country and sometimes overseas. So how mm. has the pandemic affected you in that regard?
2: Oh well, I was. I normally go and do my research. My books come out in in October every year or November for Christmas. So I generally tend to do my, and I have it finished by July. So there's a bit of a gap there. So August, September, I normally know where I'm going because a place chooses me. I don't choose the place. And off I go to live there and research. And my partner Boris and I spend time there. And you just wander around, talk to people, you know it's just it's just you get the atmosphere the history you have to be in a place any anyway this year as I was about to set off to go into the small coastal town on the south coast of Victoria it's just one state I haven't set a book in so I was going down there but the bushfires started those tragic awful months and months I mean we're still suffering from the book fires, so I didn't go to do my research till like, you know, February, March. And then the COVID, it's, COVID hit just as I was leaving. So I had that little tiny window. But of course, now I should be researching next year's book, but I can't go anywhere. I sit in this room, um, still just writing and doing a bit of gardening and not going anywhere, which is fine. So my life hasn't changed. But so what I'm doing is I'm going mentally, I'm travelling back to a place that I know and love very much, which is the area of of Pittwater outside Sydney, a very extraordinary area where I I grew up really. So uh, so I'm trying to marry it then and now.
1: And that's going to be the next book, is it?
2: Yes, yes, yep. yeah. Yep. What's well, the setting for the next book? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes so. yeah.
1: The other, you mentioned about trying to get your books on TV, and, and I, I did read somewhere that you were working on a TV version of one of the Broom Trilogy books, anyway Tears of the Moon. How is that coming along? Well, it's been I've got the wonderful
2: producer David Jowsey is doing it. He did Mystery Road and, and Sweet Country and he's done some absolutely wonderful. He's got a new movie coming out. He's juggling a lot. He and, and he knows Broom in the Kimberley very well, which is the you know, the old pearling industry. Mm. Incredibly romantic mm. and interesting. Mm. It's just the most amazing place. Mm. Unfortunately like everywhere else in Australia, they're putting a cement road that goes all the way to the tip, you know, of the Cape, when it's, you've got that romantic red dust road going into nowhere uh, and now a cement road with truckloads of, you know, overseas tourists um, is, not, is going to destroy some of the romance. But anyway, David knows the area well and Tears of the Moon is still really my most popular book. I didn't plan to write a sequel, but it was book number five and it kind of was my breakout book.
1: Yes, I I noticed that the the, the trilogy, the Broom trilogy, which has been very successful in its own right, but it wasn't written consecutively and I wondered if that was because it was either publisher or reader demand that you came back to it. Oh, it was readers. Uh, Tears of the Moon just was so spectacular
2: uh, and it sold hugely all around the world. And, and Brumos me heaps because all the tourists came there, and so a couple of years down the down the, the demand was there. So I I wrote Kimberly's Son. so some of the main characters, but in a different time frame and setting, and you know, and so you don't have to read them in in order. And then more recently, the the huge fights over development and mm-hmm. and mining in that pristine waters mm-hmm. of the of the Kimberley coast, it was it was an issue. So the Red Coast is. Um, mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, uh, is set up there but they're very they're such colourful characters and the the country is so amazing and so much indigenous history and romance and art extraordinary mm. so it's yeah it's a wonderful dreaming place
1: mm. fantastic di Um, Look, you've made it so clear that you're passionate about the environment. And in 2019, you were made a member of the Order of Australia, and it was for significant contributions to literature as a novelist and to conservation and the environment. Now, for listeners outside of Australia, perhaps just give us a very quick resume of the importance of that honour and what did it mean to you personally? Oh, well, it, I, I was absolutely go,
2: gobspect. I mean, it is, I think, Australia's most prestigious awards. And, they're, uh, they're, you know, there's the AO, the AM, which is what I have, the middle of Australia. And then there's an OAM, which is the Officer of, of Australia. And it is recognition. I mean, it's a, apparently a very extreme you know process to look at your body of work i mean it's just a huge honor that that you know you and it's given by the governor general of of australia or the, the state yeah it's just a massive award which really meant an awful lot to me because my publisher had says you are never ever going to win any award because people are snobby and they only give them to you know literary people so don't ever get your hopes up so i you know long Eddie, Anyway, I also got the Lloyd, two years previously, I got the Lloyd O'Neill Prize for from the Publishing Association of Australia, for which is also very few women have, have been presented with that. Ruth Park, I think, was the last one. So that was a massive honour. Yeah, I feel that I've arrived and that I am taken somewhat seriously. And, you know, that I also, you know, I give talks at the National Library of Australia and, you know, that's very... Very nice to to do that, to feel that you have something that people want to hear.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Look, turning to your wider career, is there one thing you've done, you think, more than any other that's the secret of your success? Would there be something that other people could take the lesson from your experience?
2: Oh, when you get knocked down, get up. And, you know, because women get knocked and mocked. And we still not paid equally. There's still so many issues. When I was a diplomat's wife, I lived in a lot of third world countries, and so you, you, I guess you get learned. There's a compassion and a need to help and do things. In Burma, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi had just come out from house arrest, and she told me that that education was going to be the key to the future. So, I was happened to run into a monk outside Mandalay and he was saying he wanted to, he pointed to this hill and said, I want to build a school there. He said, so can you help me? I went, well, Yeah. I mean clearing what <laughs> pick up a, 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 a spade and start anyway I did go back and plant trees I do have to say but anyway I raised funds and it's now an incredibly successful village school that is sending children everywhere and it's you know I mean that, that has been a lovely achievement to to know that, that, that you know, I've, I've done that I watched you know how my mother suffered so much and was still to you know in a, in a man's world and television was a wonderful crew when we started good morning australia but over the years you know because after 8 years producers come and go and i think in those last years i you know i had a horrible you know, chauvinistic, misogynist little bloke. He was little. He'd sit on the desk so he could look down on you while you sat at the chair, lowered chair. I just went, why am I doing this? Whatever happened to the dream to write a book one day? So I just said, well, on Friday, I said, well, folks, I'm not coming in on Monday. And, you know, and I had no money. I had, I was on my own. I was divorced. And everyone said, well, you know, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to write a book. Then how are you going to live? I don't know. I was living with my mum and come back home. And then you know this. So Anthony, this agent saw I had written a little outline for a television thing a couple of years before. She had a bookshop. And she used to bring people in to be interviewed on TV because I would always promote people that were writing and the producers hated it, but they thought they were just talking heads back then. Anyway, I ran into her and and she read this. And she rang me up a couple of months later and said, oh, that thing you wrote, I took it into Pan Macmillan. They want you to turn it into a novel. So you've got a year and $5,000. So I moved to Byron Bay and rented this little shack. And when I ran out of money, I ate the avocados and mangoes and whatever was in people's backyards. And fortunately, the booked worked. But if you don't take the gamble, you never know. Yeah. You just got to give it a go. And
1: that was heart of the dreaming, wasn't it? That was the yes. famous Queenie character who yes. just stole people's hearts yeah, she's great. twenty two uh, years old, and her life's already over, sort of thing.
2: Yes, yes. and she starts over running a ma- uh, you know a huge station in the in the outback. And that came about actually because I had always lived, I, you know, I went overseas to become a woman's editor and a journalist in London. Right after I, you know, graduated from the Women's Weekly, I had travelled all over the world with an American diplomat husband. I'd never, I'd never been out of Sydney. I'd never seen my own country. So when I came back to morning television. I asked if I could just have a cameraman and a sound man and I'd go around Australia and I'd find fantastic stories, which is what uh, you know I did. And at one point I was out with the wonderful legendary R.M. Williams, and he that was raising money to build the Stockman's Hall of Fame at, at Longreach. And at this and at one point, this very fancy four-wheel drive Land Cruiser. Now this was in the 80s, and so you know, this was big fancy car I never, you know, they weren't very common and out got this amazing woman sort of all in white with you know her her boots well-worn boots and a, and a, a Kubra hat but she still looked in her broom pearl earrings she still looked amazing and i said to rm who's that and he gave me the name and said, oh, she's running a property on her own. She's a fantastic horsewoman and she does this and she does that. And he said, oh, do you want to meet her? And something I said, actually, no, she might. I just felt I didn't want to spoil the image if she, like, had bad breath or was <laughs> nasty or something, you know. So I just kept this image of this wonderful woman and that became Queenie.
1: I've always wondered whether there was any hint of Sarah Henderson from Bullo Station and in, in Queenie.
2: No, this was before Sarah. Oh, it was uh, before uh, Sarah. Yes, okay. a little yeah. bit. Sarah's yeah. book and stuff came it came out later. S- yes, yes. Sarah was was a generation older and very tough, but she but she's another typical strong woman that you find extraordinary women in mm. Outback Australia. The women mm. are amazing. Mm. I mean, when we look back at the pioneer women, they were the ones that did the work, stayed at home, had the bobies on their own, f- looked after, you know, the, they while well, men were out doing whatever they did, you know. Yeah, nothing. sure. So, yeah, so, so strong women are, uh, and I think I have a record of having the women in my books are always very interesting and strong. There is yes. no wimps.
1: No. Look, turning to Daya's reader because this is, and it's the joys of binge reading. So we like to promote the sorts of books that you like to read, the ones that might be regarded as entertainment, but still have some very, very skilled in the way that they're presented and have lots of good messages. So if you're binge reading, who do you like to binge read? Oh, I don't
2: don't really have... Have any anyone, though I have just been, I'm just starting because I haven't started the Robert Gilbraith series of JK Rowlings. I'm told they're fabulous. So I will start with book one this Christmas. But I read anything and every everything, but I also read a lot of older books. I'm a great collector of books. I have a massive library. I inherited all of our family were readers from my grandfather who was came out as a 14-year-old boy with all his father's books of Thackeray and Dickens. And and I grew up with my uncle's books, the William books and, and you know, you know, Biggles and all of that. But I, you know, and I love children's books. And I just find that I just pick things up and and read them as I, you know, I stumble across, you know, I started to read Shirley Hazard. I hadn't read her for years. Because reading, much as I love it, I, I don't have a lot of time for it. Like a lot of people, that's my holiday time out. Because when I'm writing, which takes up so much time, I'm reading maybe research books or, mm-hmm. you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And mm-hmm. I, you know, and then I've got all my mates' books, you see, Tom Keneally and now with Meg. And there's, there's so many Austra- Australian books. And my daughter is living in America, so she keeps telling me about books she wants to read that I should read. So I, I'll read anything. You know? Yeah, it, It's a bit like a movie. I could never walk out of a movie if I'm not really enjoying a book I'll still kind of keep reading. It's, I might skim a bit, but I will finish it. I only think that's fair because I know the blood, sweat, and tears that's gone on into this book. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you read any of the sort of more contemporary Australians like Michael Rowbottom, for example? haven't ever read Michael.
2: I have his new book because I know he's good and 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 he seems such a nice guy. So I'd really like to read that. And then there was, uh, see, I read a lot of fellow, Jock Sorong, I discovered in Victoria and met him. Gorgeous fellow, fabulous writer. So I have, you know, I tend to read my mate's books. So uh, Robert Desai and You know, I just have lots of of books. And, of course, Richard Flanagan is amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, I read women's books too, but uh, it's just hard to keep up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I'm I'm very happy for recommendations (laughs) because I have to, I have book reviews in my newspaper. I generally get other people to do them, but occasionally, you know, I'll do 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 them too. I re, I read a lot of
1: non-fiction. I'm just trying to remember in the latest Auckland Film Festival. There was the Ned Kelly movie from. Now, who was who is the very famous Australian writer who did the Ned Kelly biography? Tom,
2: no, oh, Tom Keneally. I'm thinking of Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. Oh yes, I've just gone blank.
1: Yeah, but yeah. That 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 Ned Kelly film is just fantastic. It it really yeah. is. I could I could recommend that. There's a slight sort of fantasy edge to it that. At the beginning, when I read about it, I thought, oh, I don't know if I'd quite like that. But they, they integrated into the movie so well that it's just fantastic. Oh, yeah. yes.
2: No, it worked fabulously.
1: Well, I thought that chanter Jimmy Blacksmith, Tom
2: Keneally's, you know, uh, novel, was way ahead of its time, actually, in the film. It was, you know, extraordinary. Mm. I mean, David Gulpalil has been um, mm. just a, a, an amazing force. Mm. Mm. Uh, in uh in in australian filmmaking mm. and we've got uh i think our films have had and still have a, a depth and a quality that and they're brave uh they don't pander mm. to the you know mm. commercial issues of mm. americana or, or whatever mm. so I'm very proud of our Australian film industry because Chips Rafferty, the old Australian actor who was our first major Hollywood star in a way, and he was an old stockman and he was my godfather. And Chips always said to me, "Um, look, whatever you do in life, kid, you make bloody sure it's Australian. So that's why I've kept my books centred, you know, around, around Australia and, you know, I support... Because of you know my film background, I support the Australian film industry. And this government, the cutting of arts funding across the board, is appalling. They're a bunch of philistines.
1: You're <laughs> nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, but like saying, tell it like it is, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is next for die the writer when you look ahead over the next 12 months can you tell us anything about the book that's in its conception at the moment
2: well you see I don't plan them they're they're inspired by a place and then the characters kind of and then I go to the place and a place kind of chooses me I don't put a pen in a map and say oh I haven't been to you know South Australia, or somewhere. I just have to wait. <laughs> my publisher rings up and says, "Has anything happened yet? Where are you going?" And I'm saying, "I don't know." Why have something happened? but it's funny how things do happen. I mean, if you want to know, for example, one time I walked out of a shopping centre on the Gold Coast in Queensland, very you know tourist place. I'd been up there visiting my daughter who was living up there at the time. I walked out of the store and and passed in the doorway this woman I had interviewed for Good Morning Australia years before who is like the pastoralist queen of the Kimberley, Susan Bradley. She's a legend. She's amazing. She's wonderful. And she's the funniest storyteller. She's just great. And I said, Susan, what are you doing here? And she said, oh, I'm just got a couple of hours. I'm flying up to Darwin. So I had two hours at the airport. So I thought I'd just come and shop for a pizza as you do. So we had a quick cup of coffee and I said, so what are you doing? And she, Said, oh, funny you ask. One of my elders. This is now in the early eighties. One of my elders wants uh, to find a way for black and white Australians to move move forward. So I want to find a bunch of influential Australians that can sit around the campfire and the summer camp up at Murray on the Mitchell Plateau, uh, and and we sit down and we work out how we go together. You know, black and white together. And I said to Susan man, how are you going to find them? And she said, well, yeah, that's what Mojali said to me. But he said, oh, Susan, don't you worry, they find you. So Susan said, you found me, that's me, you're coming. So a week later I was on a plane to the Kimberley and out of that came the Songmaster.
1: How fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> that's gorgeous. And I gather you do have an unusual relationship with your publisher in that regard, that it's a little bit of toing and frying, a discussion is there.
2: Well, it's no, he he doesn't interfere. Uh, he doesn't ask what where I'm going or what the books book about. Sometimes I tell him, sometimes I don't. But the system to be able to produce a book a year is a massive undertaking if to do a good book a year. And in those early days, every time I bought a book out, those girls in the press would go, "Oh, she's got another book out, just like hairspray on a paper." And so. <laughs> So, so what I do is, you know, normally an author sweats over the book and they might get halfway or finish it. Then it goes to their editor at the publisher who will then go, oh, you know what, you should have gone in another direction in Chapter 3, so start all over. So, you know, that, and that's just Oh, it, that's part of the process quite often. But what I do is, and I mean, I have been a journalist and I'm very disciplined and I'm very conscious of deadlines. I write a chapter and I have an, an editor, sometimes they're in-house and sometimes I've uh, I've had for years an old old friend who's, you know, she's not an editor, but she's a teacher and she ran a bookstore. She's just very knowledgeable about all kinds of things so I write chapter one I send it to Liz Liz starts editing that I write chapter two and then she sends chapter one back I send her chapter two I take in her changes and write chapter three as two comes back so we do this backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards a process together and so the book gets drafted about four times and is finished within the seven months Has had all of that that constant rewriting and you know pulling apart and 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 Liz also is my age and has children. Whereas a lot of the new editors are like awfully nice, sweet 25 year old girls who won't say to me like Liz does, oh God, this is a pile of shit. What are you doing with this? So they won't say that to me. Whereas, whereas Liz will. So you need that. You don't need all this research. We don't know how to want to know how to build a bloody lugger just said it since go to send it out to sea so you know stuff like that
1: <laughs> that's gorgeous that's gorgeous we're probably Ooh. starting to run out of time so you obviously have a whole tribe of fans that follow you how do you keep in touch with your readers and where can they find you online well
2: uh, well on any of my books is just online it's www.dimorrisi.com and there's a facebook page that everybody can contribute to but most people email me and the lovely older readers still write i get this wonderful spidery writing in letters but i'll tell you an example like with, if you look at the cover of before the storm and it's a girl on a you know on a lonely beach with thunderclouds but she's got her black labrador beside her and the black labrador appears in the book and I had given him a name and, and he was a very minor character and so I was about two months into the book when I got an email one morning from a gentleman who lives in Port Kembla which is the old steelworks you know very interesting tough now terrific area and he was like you know my age maybe a couple of years younger than me and he said he was moving his wife's library and he saw all these books and he is now retired he was a garbo he worked in the steelworks but he's always wanted to write he's educated and so he started to read my one of my books well he just was gobsmacked. So he emailed me and said, I've started to read because I didn't know anything about you. I thought you were girly books. So he said, I'm just over the moon. So then he emailed me every morning to say, now I'm now up to this part and this, that and the other. And I just, he was so enthusiastic. He writes to me, goes for a walk on the beach. He had a black Labrador. He walks on the beach with Sam every morning. And then at 5.30, he sends me an email. So every morning now for the past 18 months, in the morning, I sit there with my cup of tea because I've just got up and read Dan's email. And now our lives have just, like, we share stuff that we don't tell anybody else. We just, it's a sort of a writing thing, but we've just kind of never met him, never spoken to him. We just bond. And then halfway through towards the end of the book, Dear old, his dear old dog Sam, who was 15, died. And he sent me a photo of his ashes in the pond at the, you know, the pool at the beach where they walked every morning. And I was devastated and I was crying. And my Boris came in and said, What's the matter? And I said, I'm so worried about Sam. And he's going, Who the hell's Sam? <laughs> and so anyway, I was my friend's Black Labrador. So what I did was I changed the name of the dog in the book to Sam and then I asked Dan to send me, oh, send me some photos, sentimental photos. So I went through all these photos and we picked out one that we Photoshopped onto the cover of the book. So that is Dan's dog, Sam, that's on the cover of the book.
1: What didn't a gorgeous look, story, Dan. It didn't
2: tell, didn't tell him when he got the book. He just burst into tears. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's wonderful, so you make wonderful friends through books.
1: Look, you're an amazing person. You really are, and that story just caps it because most people wouldn't be bothered taking the time to receive and answer all those emails.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I, it just takes a, a few minutes, and sometimes, yeah, people share an awful lot of things, and there's an awful lot of lonely people out there, and and there's a lot of people that don't email or, or Facebook but send a your know, heartfelt notes. And of course, now with my newspaper. Ah, all the whistleblowers. I have the whistleblowers. I have all of the the people who have nowhere to turn when their terrible things are happening. Like we have massive issues with our hospital and they've, you know, they had to come to me because no one else would do anything about it. So, yeah, so every morning I open a, I never know if it's going to be I loved your book or I know what criminal activity is going on in the whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it's fun. <laughs> Look, that's wonderful. I think that's a great place to stop. All the very best with the next book, wherever it's going to take you. And thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Jenny. It's been lovely and lots of love and good wishes to all your uh, listeners. Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
1: The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer Who's really and available to help you with your next project seek him out at dc services at gmail.com that's d for daniel c for charlie audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes he's fast he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.